Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 13. And as you're turning there, I wanted to uh, mention something that I failed to mention earlier. I bumped into Melissa Randolph in the hallway uh, coming over here this morning, and she, with tears, was uh, letting me know this was their last Sunday here. Uh, Kyle, um, her her husband, has uh, been working up in Midland and uh, kind of been commuting back and forth and waiting for their uh, girls to graduate and be done with school and things, and so now they're officially uh, moving up that way, and, uh, and so she was just expressing what, what a, how grateful she was for uh, the time they were able to be here at Lakeside, and so if you see uh, Melissa and the girls this morning, make sure you give them a big old hug um, before they get away, and uh, it's not a, again, not a goodbye, a see you later, hopefully we'll be crossing paths uh, for some reason here in the future, but... Uh, they've been a precious family to have uh, a part of our body. Well, Romans 13 uh, is um, a familiar text, I imagine, to most, if not all of you. In fact, uh, yesterday I had a conversation with uh, a lady in our church who uh, was confiding in me that she was having a hard time with her attitude towards the governing officials at present and uh, told me that, knew that this was next in our study of Romans and she said, you're gonna have to really preach that, Ken, because I need to hear it. And, uh, and you can't just cover that in one Sunday. And so I went home going, okay, Lord, wh- what do I do with that? And so, well, you know who you are, who told me that. Uh, and you got your wish because we're basically just going to cover verse 1 this morning. <laughs> so uh, you were right. There was just more here to tackle than um, I thought going into it. And so uh, let me read the Romans 13, 1 through 7, because that's really the, the, the group of verses that goes together. And uh, we'll start looking at it this morning. But Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Father, we pause to... Thank you again for your word and particularly this uh, letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Rome and this passage in especially is especially relevant and practical for us uh, in this um, time in our history. 
as a country. And uh, so, Lord, I, I just thank you for your sweet providence in bringing us here. And would you use this text to help us understand what you want us to understand so that we can be uh, all that you want us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the clearest and at the same time most controversial passage in the New Testament regarding a Christian's duty to honor and obey the governing authorities God has sovereignly placed over them. And as I mentioned in my prayer, we have um, arrived at this critical text in our study of Romans at one of the most turbulent times in our nation's history. It seems to me at least that ever since the election of our acting president, the normal tension and friction between our two main political parties has reached a level of annoyance and antagonism unlike anything we've ever seen. And the atmosphere in Washington and across our land has become extremely volatile. Do you feel that or is that just me? Our government leaders are at odds with each other. Our citizens are fed up with their elected officials. And then mix in a global pandemic, nationwide lockdowns, a few cases of police brutality, and a fresh wave of racial unrest and top it off with an inflammatory, derogatory news media who pours gas on everything and it seems like our country is ready to go up in smoke. Thankfully, for those of us who know our citizenship is ultimately in heaven and who eagerly await the return and reign of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we can remain peaceful and hopeful in the midst of the chaos that's swirling all around us. And even though we are aliens and strangers who are just passing through this fallen world on the way to our heavenly kingdom, we still have a responsibility to be loyal, obedient, respectful, law-abiding citizens here on this earth. We have what you could call a dual citizenship. One here in heaven, or excuse me, one here on earth and one in heaven. One of the clearest places in scripture um, that talks about this is 1 Peter chapter two. Turn with me over there for just a moment and I want you to see the other passages in the New Testament that address this subject of the Christian and government. 1 Peter chapter two, verse 11. This was probably be second only to Romans 13. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which weighs war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. And then here it is, verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as to the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then flip backwards to Titus, Titus chapter 3, 
Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul was writing to Titus, who was overseeing the the, the planting of churches on the the island of Crete, along with the establishment of elders and training and equipping those churches. And so in Titus chapter 3, he addresses the this, this subject of citizenship. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And then turn back a little bit further into 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And again, Paul was uh, writing to Timothy now and uh, exhorting him to exhort the members of the church in Ephesus, this is chapter 2, verse 1, he said, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that, they may, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So based on those other passages on the Christian and government, we learn that we shouldn't be indifferent to what is going on in our country and carelessly and perhaps self-righteously sit back and watch the world go to hell in a handbasket, as they say. I came across an interesting verse, Jeremiah 29.7. God was um, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel Uh, to Judah in particular, who were in Babylonian exile at the time. And he said this, quote, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. So we are to seek the welfare of our city. We are to seek the welfare of our country wherever it is that God has providentially placed us, we're to pray to God on the behalf of our city, on behalf of our country and its leaders, because as the country goes or as our city goes, what? We go. Daniel and his three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are a good example of those who were actively involved in the governmental affairs of Babylon and were strategically used by God to be salt and light in a pagan society. Another prime example in the Old Testament would be Joseph. He was a godly man who served in an influential role in the government of Egypt. And uh, God used him to protect and preserve his chosen people. According to the New Testament... Every Christian has the same opportunity to influence and impact society for the sake of the the gospel, for the cause of Christ, and it all starts with a proper understanding of our responsibility to the government under which God has placed us, you ready for this? Even when it fails. Even when it fails. And I think that was Paul's goal in this passage because the, the, the believers he was writing to were living and ministering in the capital city of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about the emperors of Rome who reigned uh, really throughout Rome's history, uh, many of them 
were some of the most cruel, unjust leaders who ever lived. They were capricious, self-serving tyrants. In fact, I wanted to read for you what, uh, how one commentator described uh, the leadership that um, these uh, readers of uh, this letter were under. Emperors under which the church in Rome lived began with the infamous Caligula. His reign began just a few years after the resurrection of Christ and founding of the church. And though uh, there were undoubtedly already some Christians resident in Rome, there is little evidence of his persecution of believers. The Christian sect would have appeared to Roman officials as little more than a disruptive branch of Judaism. While the Roman Empire as a whole was tolerant of Judaism, Caligula on one occasion commanded Petronius, governor of Syria, to place a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem for purposes of adoration. The Jews in Jerusalem were so strident in their opposition that Caligula withdrew the command, fearing an uprising. Just because Caligula was tolerant of Christians and Jews, however, does not mean he was an emperor to be loved. Caligula and Tiberius Gemilius were first appointed joint emperors, the Senate and people later choosing Caligula as sole ruler. One of his first acts was to have Gemulius murdered. Following a, calm, following a calm initial six months in office, Caligula suffered a severe illness after which he appeared to go insane. He murdered most of his relatives, had people tortured and killed while he ate, named his favorite horse as a counselor, declared himself a god, and had temples and sacrifices dedicated to himself. Not surprisingly, he was assassinated by the officers of his guard. Following Caligula was Claudius I. We've heard about him uh, in our study of Rome, Romans already. Uh, he was the uncle of Caligula who reigned from AD 41 to 54. He delegated most of his responsibilities to his wife, Messalina, whom he had, murder, whom he had murdered in AD 48. And then he married his niece, Agrippini, Agrippinina, Agrippina, excuse me, the younger, who was responsible for poisoning Claudius. There was some definitely family drama going on here. Uh, though Claudius treated the Jews in Rome with indulgence, he banished them all from Rome midway through his reign because of the disturbances related to Christus, probably a reference to Jewish unrest over the preaching of the gospel of Christ in Rome. We've talked about that before. After Claudius' death in AD 54, who came next? you remember? Nero. Nero assumed the throne and reigned until AD 68. Nero was emperor when Paul wrote Romans. So you got Nero on the throne um, right now in the historical context of what we're reading in Romans 13. Um, this was the Roman, this was the governing authority when Paul was talking about the governing authority, he was making reference to Nero. His reign was no more salutary than those of his predecessors and ultimately was much worse as far as believers in Christ were concerned. Nero became emperor, emperor at age 15 and at age 22 he had his mother murdered, followed three years later, later by the divorce and later murder of his wife. It is thought by many historians that the great fire that swept Rome uh, in AD 64 was instigated by Nero who blamed it on the Christians. He had Christians tortured and burned publicly, ultimately taking the lives of both the apostles Peter and Paul. Nero committed suicide under pressure against his policies in AD 68. Again, we've talked about Nero. He was the one who would dip Christians in pitch 
or tar and light them on fire and use them as human tiki torches for his dinner parties or orgies, as they would say. Um, uh, he would also sew Christians or have Christians sewn inside animal skins and, and throw them into the Colosseum and let them get eaten alive by wild animals. So when, again, to make the point, when the believers in Rome heard Paul say or read what Paul wrote here, every person is to be in, subject, in, in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which are, exist are established by God. They just put Nero in there and his predecessors. So I read that to provide some perspective because compared to what the believers in Rome had to deal with, we believers in America have it pretty good. In fact, we have it much easier. And while our government is far from perfect, we are blessed to have a stable and reasonably just government, unlike so many other in, others in history or in other parts of the world today who live in totalitarian, totalitarian states led by corrupt, tyrannical dictators. And yet, regardless of the type of government we find ourselves under, whether it's a democracy or a monarchy or even a tyranny, we must keep in mind that all governments are led by flawed, sinful people who abuse their authority at times and who may rule harshly and unfairly and oftentimes say and do the wrong thing. So all human government will be marked by some degree of corruption and injustice. But that does not give us the right to rebel against it and seek to overthrow it. Certainly there's a place for respectful appeal and holding those in positions of authority accountable for their, for their actions and their decisions and seeking to, to correct and reform how they do their job. But when our Lord was unjustly tried and wrongfully killed by the religious and political authorities in his day, he left us an example to follow by patiently enduring the wrongs done to him without reviling or retaliating in any way, but simply entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We saw that last week as an example of what it looks like to live out the principles of chapter 12, verses 14 and to 21. Now I guarantee you that many of you are thinking already, okay, but what about this? Well, yeah, okay, yeah, but what about this? And I appreciate the words of Douglas Moo, who's been a very helpful friend through this study of Romans. His commentary is very well done, and he said this, quote, many interpretations of Romans 13, one through seven, end up being explanations of what the text does not mean rather than what it does mean. Paul does not even mention exceptions. His concern is to get us to recognize the place that governing authorities rightfully have under God as those placed over us. That should be the focus of our reading and application. Another commentator said it this way, there are exceptions, and we should consider them. 
but we must not let the main burden of the passage die the death of a thousand qualifications. And so you just need to know that this passage opens up the proverbial can of worms and as we work our way through this passage, I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions that are going to come into your heads, um, which I may not answer, and you will be left with difficult dilemmas to sort out in your own hearts and your own minds. For example, was it right for the American colonies to revolt against the rule of the King of England? Uh, King of England? And was our country born out of a violation of Romans 13? Just, just saying. I'm not telling you where I'm laying. I'm just, just saying. And, and if that's the case, then why has God blessed our nation so much? If that didn't wake you up, how about this? Would it ever be right for Texas to secede from the union? Put your guns away, okay? Seriously, was it right for those living under the Nazi regime to defy the government and shelter the Jews and even participate, participate in the plot to assassinate Hitler? Was it right for our country to join World War II in order to retaliate against Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor? And is, is there such a thing as a just war? How about a more contemporary dilemma? Was it right for pastors and churches in our country to disobey the orders of county judges and gather for church even though the motive of the government was not to persecute churches but to protect citizens? Is it right for Christians to join in protests and marches and sit-ins against the injustices, the atrocities in our society like abortion or sex trafficking or racial discrimination. I told you this was a controversial text. And, and obviously these are all debatable questions that good godly people answer differently, but whatever conclusion you come to Regarding these gray areas, you need to grapple with what Paul said here in Romans 13. They, they all, every conclusion passes through Romans 13. And you've got to somehow understand Romans 13 and, and, and the implications of Romans 13 and apply it to each one of these dilemmas. So, let's begin looking at verses one through seven, where Paul lays out for us three aspects of our duty as Christians to honor and obey the governing authorities God has sovereignly placed over us even when it fails, even when they fail. Three aspects of our duty as Christians to honor and obey the governing authorities God has sovereignly placed over us even when they fail. So the first thing we're gonna see here is the rule about submission. The rule about submission. Then we'll see the rationale for submission and then the result of submission. So let's look first of all at the rule of submission. That first sentence there, very clear, says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. 
That word subjection obviously is the operative term there. It's the word hupotasso in the Greek, which means placing yourself under someone of higher rank. This was a word used of a soldier submitting to a, a superior officer. And so what Paul was commanding here, and by the way, this is a command. This is not a suggestion or a recommendation or a guideline. Uh, this is a biblical mandate that must be obeyed. The command here is that every believer is to gladly and willingly submit to government officials who rule or reign over us. And this applies to whatever part of the world you're in and whatever form of government you're under. And on, in our context here in America, those who exercise authority over us include federal, uh, state, local leaders who have either been elected or appointed uh, to their position, whether that's the president, the vice president, members of Congress, judges, governors, mayors, county commissioners, city council members, school board members, police officers. I think this command also applies in principle to anyone who God has placed in authority over us. So this applies to wives in regards to their husbands and children in regards to their parents and employees in regards to their boss and students in regards to their teachers and church members in regards to the pastors and elders. See, the standard or the, the, the structure of authority and submission is inherent in our society. That's just the way God set it up. There, there is no one who is not under some kind of authority. Have you realized that? And, and, and those who don't want to live under authority or refuse to live under authority typically end up in Huntsville. You know what I mean by that, right? There's a place that people go that never learn how to submit to authority or refuse to submit to authority. And I think a good place to start in our understanding of this authority submission, submission, uh, submission standard or, or structure in society is that there is authority and submission even within the Trinity. Within the Godhead, the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Son and, and yet they're all equal. Don't think about that too much. So it's not any slight on who you are that you have to submit to someone else. It's no slight on the Son of God to submit to the Father and it's no slight on the Spirit to submit to the Son. It's, they, they work together in perfect harmony. In fact, Ephesians says before it got to the wives submitting to the husbands, it said submit to one another, right, in love. That there should be a sweet submission going on between a husband and a wife deferring to one another. I think this is so challenging because all of us are by nature anti-authority. Rather than submitting to authority, we naturally resent and resist authority of any kind. From the day we're born until the day we die, we chafe against the authority over us. And it's evidenced by the, the infant's cry when they have to wait for the next scheduled feeding. Or the toddler's willful defiance when instructed not to touch. Don't touch that. I'm going to do it anyway, right? See what happens. Test the waters. Or that child's adamant protest when, it's, when he's told it's time to go to bed. 
or by the teenager's rolled eyes and apathetic shrug when asked to change their outfit or be reminded of their curfew or maybe the wife's discontent when her husband makes a decision she doesn't like or doesn't agree with or by the man's anger and frustration when his boss promotes someone other than him and maybe even perhaps by the elderly person's resentment when their kids take away certain freedoms that they once enjoyed. It's always there from the time we're born to the time we die. And all these responses reveal that every one of us has a sinful tendency to rebel against authority. And furthermore, we live in an anti-authority age. So we have an anti-authority heart and we live in an anti-authority age where authority is constantly being challenged and called into question. Authority is despised and disrespected and disregarded on all levels, whether it's parents or teachers or bosses or, or cops or you name it. Our culture has an aversion to authority and seeks autonomy. We, we want to be liberated from authority. We want to have, we want to rule ourselves. In fact, we've seen that, um, a great example of that up in Seattle recently with that CHAZ or now CHOP as they call it. The CHAZ originally stood for Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And, and really what it was was a police-free zone. And really it was just an indication of what's in every man's heart and that's like you're not the boss of me, <laughs> right? That's in all of our hearts. We want to be our own boss. We don't want anyone telling us what we can and cannot do. And that's why this simple little sentence rubs us the wrong way. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Paul couldn't have made it any more plain that all governments and all places are to be honored and obeyed. And notice, he gave no qualification or condition to our submission. He didn't say it depended on whether the authority was competent or incompetent or kind or cruel or moral or immoral or just or unjust or godly or ungodly. He just said, be in subjection to them. Submit to them. Honor them. Obey them. That's the rule about submission. Now, if you're like me, you're like, okay, great. You gotta give me something more than that, okay? Because that's just a hard pill to swallow. Well, let's go then next, and Paul knew that, okay? Knew that was gonna be a hard pill to swallow. If, if, if Nero's your president, okay? Your emperor, okay? He goes on to, dis to, to discuss the rationale for submission. Why? Why would you tell us to submit to a guy like Nero. And he goes in verses, uh, the, the end of verse one all the way through verse five to give reasons for why we should submit to the governing authorities. And the first reason is all authority is ordained or established by God. All authority is ordained or established by God. That's the first rationale for submission. Notice it says, for there is no authority except from God and those who exist, those which exist, are established by 
God. So we have, you know, the first thing we need to understand is this, that, that government was God's idea. Well, it wasn't man's idea. It was God's idea. And he, con- he wisely conceived it in eternity past as part of his grand design for humanity and officially established it shortly after Noah and his family exited, exited the ark uh, following the flood. And if you want to turn back to Genesis chapter 9, you can see this with me. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, uh, Noah and his family had just uh, come out of the ark, and God makes a covenant with them. This is the Noahic covenant. This is where we see the rainbow, and right? But in, in, in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Does that sound familiar? That's what God told Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 that God had created men and women, male and female, uh, in his image And they were to be fruitful and multiply. And they did. And uh, as you know, their sons killed one another, right? Abel, uh, or or, um, what's the guy's name? Cain, thank you. Forgot that guy. Cain and Abel, right? You know the story. Well, they immediately lost sight of the fact that my brother's made in the image of God. I'm going to take his life. And, and, and mankind was off to the races, if you will, when it came to sinning against one another and uh, violating the, the image of God in one another uh, to the point where God was grieved that he created the earth. And what did he, what did he do? He said, I'm going to destroy them all and start over. And so this was, the, this was the reset here, if you will, in Genesis chapter 9. And, and so what is he doing? He's reminding the people, hey, just want you to know now you're down to the families here. I want you to kind of start all over again, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, right? But in that same context, he goes back to the original uh, commitment that he made to mankind or, or what he said, a description of mankind which he was made in his image. The point is that the first responsibility that God delegated to civil authority was what? What do we call it? Capital punishment. Which indicates the primary purpose of of government is to protect the lives of its citizens by providing appropriate punishment for crimes committed, especially those crimes that violate man's dignity as one created in the image of God. See, God knew what would happen if fallen man was allowed to exist without any authority or accountability. Mankind's sin and rebellion would go unchecked and man's depravity would be unleashed and chaos would ensue, which we've seen happening with all the looting and the rioting, right? Just an expression of man's depravity. It's like I can can do what I always want to do and get away with it. I mean, they're telling us to wear masks. That's half the problem. I'll put a mask on. They won't know who I am, right? 
and then I can go take what I want without paying for it. So God established government back in Genesis chapter 9 to restrain sin and to maintain law and order. Otherwise, society would degenerate into anarchy and inevitably destroy itself. I mentioned last week one of my favorite novels was The Count of Monte Cristo, another one of the novels that I will never forget. It's like I can see myself sitting at my little desk in our back room as a high school student reading William Golding's um, classic, The Lord of the Flies. I'm sure you're familiar with that story. It was fascinating to me. And uh, probably because as a young Christian, I was seeing uh, biblical truth uh, communicated through this uh, example of these, of these boys who, uh, where there's no government, right? What happens to society where there's an absence of government? Well, you, our wickedness comes out. And it was really a brilliant tale about anarchy and the need for um, God-established or God-ordained government. I mean, over the past few weeks, we've been given a glimpse into what the world would be like without any authority or police presence, right? Just look at what's going on at the CHOP thing in Seattle. I mean, getting rid of the police might seem like a great idea at first, but it will end up eventually like the land of Israel during the judges' era where everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. It's no wonder that after going through that period where there was no stable, clearly established authority that the Jews craved and clamored for a king. God wanted Israel to be a theocracy in which he served as their king, but they opted instead for a human king and God gave them what they asked for and they soon found out that being governed by men falls woefully short of God's ideal. Even so, God has chosen to rule and to reign over the earth and accomplish his divine purposes through the human leaders and governments that he sovereignly raises up and tears down. This statement here, for there is no authority except from God and those who exist are established by God, is one of the clearest, strongest statements in all of scripture excuse me, regarding the sovereignty of God over world affairs. And we know this is affirmed throughout the Old Testament that, that, that God has sovereign control over kings and nations. Look, look with me at a, a few of these uh, passages. And again, this is so helpful for us to think rightly about God, right? Because what, is, uh, what did Tozer say? The most important thing about us is what comes in our minds when we think about God. So we need to understand the sovereignty of God. Psalm 75, verse 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And then Isaiah chapter 8. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8. Isaiah 46, verse 8. And here was the prophet Isaiah describing how God was going to raise up the king of Babylon to swoop in like a bird of prey and pick up the Jews and whisk them off 
into exile in Babylon. But listen to how he describes this. Remember this and be assured. Recall to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. This is verse 10, Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that's the king of Babylon, The man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. And then look at Jeremiah. Same thing, Jeremiah chapter 27, talking now specifically about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and how God was gonna use him as a tool to to discipline and to punish um, the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 27, verse 5. I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, in my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. So God's simply saying, hey, I'm, I'm the one who's raising up Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't come to, to power on his own. I brought him to power. This is part of my plan. This is part of my will for the nations. Well, the Jews may have got that, but it took Nebuchadnezzar a while to get that. Uh, this, he had to learn this the hard way. And uh, if you look at, uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter two would be a good place to start. Daniel chapter two, this is where Nebuchadnezzar had that vision um, of the statue and uh, made a different types of metal and and then the stone was, came and, right, smashed it. And he was like, what is that all about? And so he got Daniel to interpret it for him. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, this is how Daniel begins his interpretation. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So the main phrase there is he removes kings and establishes kings. Well, even though Daniel provided Nebuchadnezzar an interpretation of his vision, it didn't change his heart He was still very arrogant and very prideful. Um, And so God gave him another vision of this great tree that was gonna grow up and then it was gonna get cut down. And again, a picture of himself and his kingdom. And uh, this is chapter four, verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. Again, this is Daniel interpreting this vision for him. In order that the living excuse me, and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And again, this entire chapter, chapter four, it's 
over and over. It said, verse 25, you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And again, Nebuchadnezzar was up on the top, his rooftop going, hey, look at all this. Look at all this that I've accomplished. Look at all this that I've done. And God's like, oh, really? And so he humbled him and even as it was prophesied, he went insane. And uh, he went from sitting on his throne, ruling over the known world at the time, to crawling around his front yard like a cow eating grass. And at the end, what was the conclusion? Look at this, verse 36. Well, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, who, what have I done, or excuse me, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so that I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heavens for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. In other words, the, the lesson that God wanted to teach Nebuchadnezzar was simply, who's, who's the real sovereign? You, you think you are, but no, I am. So God alone is the true sovereign of the universe. All the rulers in the world are subservient to him and providentially put in place by him to fulfill his will and plans for his kingdom. That includes the likes of Nebuchadnezzar and Herod and Hitler and Stalin and Amin and Saddam and Ayatollah, even Donald Trump. Now, just because God sovereignly places men like these in power doesn't mean he approves of all that they say and do. Furthermore, leaders don't derive their authority from the people who elected them in a democracy, for example, or through heredity, the divine right of kings, or by sheer force in an autocracy. The authority, their authority is derived from God himself. And it's not just derived authority, it is delegated authority. Remember the exchange that Jesus had with Pontius Pilate? When Pontius Pilate was asking him all these questions, trying to figure out, why, why, do they, why does everyone want to kill this guy? Talk to me, man. I, you know, I, 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 could, I got the power of, you know, uh, life or death. And he said, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So government authorities exist to serve God or stated differently, they serve people on behalf of God. In fact, it's interesting, back in Romans 13, uh, three times uh, Paul refers to leaders as either ministers or servants of God. Notice verse four. For it is a minister of God for good. 
Again, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God. So, as servants of God, government officials have delegated authority, which also means they have limited authority. In other words, it's not absolute. How come you're not all going, okay, now we're getting to the good stuff. This is the part I like. This is what I wanted to hear. See, if God-ordained leaders overstep their divinely delegated authority, that is the one and only time when we don't have to submit to them. That's the exception. In other words, if anyone in authority over us commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands, we must obey, disobey them, excuse me, in order to obey God. When man's laws contradict or come in conflict with God's laws, civil disobedience is unavoidable and it is justifiable. And there's lots of examples of civil disobedience. We don't have time to get into them this morning, so you'll have to come back and next Sunday and we'll look at the Hebrew midwives and Daniel's resolve and Daniel 1 and the fiery furnace and the lion's den and the apostles when they were told not to preach, right? There's some, there's some precedent in the scriptures um, that if we're ever in a position where we need to choose to obey God rather than men, that we need to be prepared for the consequences and to endure whatever penalty they may impose on us. Can I end on some good news? The good news is that our governing authorities are not perfect or permanent. We are destined for something better than what's happening right now. Someday the perfect ruler will come to set up his permanent reign over us and we will live forever with Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords in the new heavens and the new earth. Doesn't that sound good? So hang in there. We're not there yet. But that's where all this thing is headed, right? In the meantime, we need to ask God to grant us the grace to endure and to honor and respect and obey as much as we're able to in line with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, time this morning. There's been a lot to try to take in all at once, I know, but Lord, I pray that um, you would just begin working in our hearts and softening our hearts towards the truth of your words. If there's been any resistance in our hearts towards what, what you say here, uh, Lord, that you would just address that and uh, humble us and convict us. And Lord, I just ask that you would give us wisdom as we sort out all the dilemmas that, that, that come into our minds and our hearts when we grapple with this text and what to do in this case and in this situation and did those people do the right thing or the wrong thing? What if I was in that situation? What would I do? And Lord, this is, this is good for us to have to grapple with your word and to seek to put it into practice in our lives. And so you've given us a great context to do that in the crazy world we're living in right now. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace as we 
seek to live out this uh, text uh, in a way that would honor you and uh, prove to be salt and light uh, in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.